Remain standing as we read our text today, then we'll pray, and then you can be seated, I promise. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm reading verses 7 to 13. I know that it says, I'm sorry, verses 7 to 12. I know it says 13. I'm only going to 12 today. Maybe. This is the word of the Lord. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Let's go to the Lord for help. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask now that as we come to your word, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears, that we may hear what you have for us. I ask, Father, that you would be with me, keep me from error. May I remain faithful to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, last week, uh, you guys, um, you guys are still going through the book of Ephesians, I see. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon, which is good. The book of Ephesians um, largely is about what it looks like to build a Christian culture in a church. And that's what you guys have been learning about. Over the last several months, almost a year now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, right? It's been about a year? Yeah? Um, within those, the first half of that book, chapters 1 to 3, you learned about all the many mercies and treasures and gifts that God has given to his church. You've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your own doing, so that no man may boast. You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ. These are just a few of the things that we were told. You were told that you were beloved of Christ, that you've been chosen by Christ, that you've been predestined in Christ. These are just a few of those many blessings that we see early on in this book. But chapter 4 shifts the conversation. Because after learning about all the amazing things that God has done for you, in light of those things, he now begins giving us imperatives. He begins, the Apostle Paul begins giving us things to do, things that um, reflect what God has done on our behalf. Two weeks ago, Pastor Tim, he gave you a a kind of a 3,000 foot view of the first 16 verses of chapter 4, and last week, he zeroed in on the first six verses of this chapter. And the first six verses of this chapter is the backdrop to our text today. In those first six verses, the Apostle Paul stresses the vital component of unity within the body of Christ. If there was one phrase that you should have taken from last week's sermon, it was this. There's no schism in the true church of Jesus Christ. Yes, we have brothers and sisters who are part of different denominations. We're a Baptist. There are those who are Presbyterian. There are brothers and sisters in the Methodist churches and, and brothers and sisters in non-denominational churches. And yes, we have distinctions that separate us from them. 
But there is always one thing that we have in common. And the key to this is found in verses 4, 5, and 6 of chapter 4. Where Paul tells us that there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The Apostle Paul, he repeats the word one seven times. It's almost like he's trying to tell us something. It's almost as though we are supposed to remember as Christians that we are united in Christ. We have different distinctions, sure. However, we have this in common. Jesus is Lord. Now, as we approach our text today, these um, the verses 7 through 12, there are four primary things I want you to keep in mind. We're going to look at a grace given by Jesus. We're going to look at a grace won by Jesus. We're going to look at a grace that's been established by Jesus and a grace that is being sustained by Jesus. That first one, a grace given by Jesus, we see in verse 7 where where Paul says, But... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now remember the verses just preceding this is you are one, you are one, you are one, you are unity, you are one body. And then Paul goes, but, but each one of you has received something unique. Although we are all one in Christ, each one of us is different. Somehow we are just a little bit different and that is a good thing. Because it takes the church of Jesus Christ and turns it into this tapestry, this collage, uh, if you will, of, uh, of different types of gifts and talents. And it's a beautiful picture of what heaven is going to look like. Each and every one of us has something specific that Jesus has given to us. And it's been carefully measured out by Jesus himself. Look at the end of verse 7. This grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. If you, have you ever wondered why it is? And I've been in church all my life. I grew up in the church. My father was a pastor. And I can remember on multiple occasions myself thinking, why doesn't everybody else, why aren't they as passionate about this part of church as I am? You guys, anybody? Anybody, anybody feel that way ever? The reason for that is because God's poured out a different measure for you than for somebody else. That's what you're passionate about and you should be working on those things. And then somebody else is more people who are far more gifted to us in music. Others who are more gifted with, with crazy people like Tim and myself who like to stand up in front of people and, and talk. I know there's a lot of people. It gives them a lot of anxiety. Others love to help. Last night, um, if, if you wondered uh, what that weird smell was back there by the kitchen, um, it was a couple days ago there was a – I walked in on Friday night to come and get – the, the order of service for today, and when I walked in, I could smell something, and I walked into the kitchen, and I found um, the door of the freezer uh, held open just ajar because there was something inside that was blocking the door from closing, and inside the freezer was a turkey that had begun to melt and, 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 and defrost, and it was, it was gross. Anyway, I called Tim, asked him what he thought I should do, and he said, don't worry, Heather will take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> And so I came in last night and scared me half to death because Heather, I heard this banging and she's trying to scrape the uh, frozen juices out of the freezer. But what I learned after talking with Heather for a few moments, the thing she likes to do isn't necessarily to be up in front of everybody, but she does like to do a lot of things. She likes to help. 
That's her passion. That's what she's good at. That's what she likes to do. And each one of you has been given a specific gift that's been poured out for Christ, by Christ. We are all different. We are all one, but we are also different. Now, when it says that there is a grace that has been given, this is not the grace that is articulated in Ephesians chapter 1, where we're learning about the salvific grace, right? Where we are saved by grace. That's not what's being talked about here. But rather, this reminds us that salvation is not the only grace that God gives us. In fact, everything that we have, our skills, our talents, our abilities, our families, everything is a gift of God's grace to us. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, of himself, of his ministry, he says that I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. His ability to go around and proclaim the gospel and to plant churches, that was a gift of God's grace. He tells the church in Rome in chapter 12 of, Rome, uh, in chapter 12 of his letter to the Romans, he says, Having, we all have different gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given to us. The Apostle Peter wrote in his first letter to the Asian church in chapter 4, he says, as each, one, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Here, here's where he's highlighting. Variety of gifts, we're all different, but we're of the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And we can learn a few things from these verses. What we take away from these very graces that God gives us is that all Christians everywhere receive gifts from God. You can't like opt out of this one. You can't be like, nah, I don't really want that. I don't really have anything to do with this. No, no, no. If you are saved, if you, if you are saved and you belong to the person of Jesus Christ, you have been given a gift for a reason. It's not just to sit there and grow stale, not to sit there and be stagnant. It is meant for you to use to serve the church. It's meant for you to use for the common good. And yes, we do use our gifts to do outreach and, and to, to, to bring the gospel to lost people. But primarily, just like in any family, you take care of your people and then you take care of everybody else. You serve your church. This is the body of Christ. Now these gifts will vary in use and function as we already mentioned. And again, don't forget, these are meant to serve one another. Now something striking about this text, at least I found striking, is what Paul grounds his reasoning in. You see, not only was this grace given to us by Jesus, but it was also won for us by Jesus. Not only when Jesus went to the cross, he did not only save us from our sins, although that was the primary purpose. There was all kinds of other benefits that came with that as well. Jesus went to the cross, and on it, when he died, his death was his great victory, where he won our freedom from sin, but he also won for us, his bride, unique gifts to adorn her with. And Paul makes this argument from Psalm chapter 68, when he says, therefore, it says in verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. He is citing a psalm. He's repeating a psalm that David wrote hundreds of years before this. And he says that the reason that David wrote this is because, that's what therefore means, right? 
Because Jesus has given gifts to his people, that is why David wrote this. Uh, Reading that, I'm like, really? Well, in order for us to get a good understanding of why that is, we need to actually look at that psalm. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 68. And you're going to notice a couple of things that uh, Paul did in his quotation because his quotation is altered. He changed it a little bit. I'll explain why, or at least my best guess as to why. But before we look at the specific verse that he is quoting, we want to get a feeling for what this chapter is about. So if you see at the top of the chapter in verse 1, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. All right, so this is a psalm that David wrote. And then we read in verse 1, God shall arise, so God gets up, his enemies shall be scattered. All right, so God gets up and people get scared and run away. All right, that's what's happening here. People who people who are enemies of God get scared and run away. And then it says, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Verse 2, as smoke is driven away, so shall uh, so shall you drive them away as wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish. Before God. This is a picture of God going to battle against his enemies. Further down in this very same chapter, after the battle has been fought and God has been declared victorious, in verse 12, we're told that the kings of the armies, they flee, they flee, and the women at home divide the spoil. So, The kings that God, or the the enemies that God is fighting against here, they lose. And then these kings give spoil or tribute, and the women are dividing up the spoil. Now, let's go to the verse that David, or sorry, that Paul quoted, which is verse 18. He says, you, speaking to God, ascended on high. Which, if you you look closely at that, that's, that's odd. Why would God have any need to ascend? In this context, David, writing this, why would God need to ascend? Paul addresses that, and we're going to get to it in a minute. But then it goes on. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. Those are the captives that Jesus has set free with his death on the cross. And he's leading them into freedom and receiving gifts from among men. Here you're going to notice that there's a little difference between what Paul said and what the psalmist says. What Paul said was that he gave gifts to men. And what the psalmist says, it says, and receiving gifts among men. What's going on here? Now, I'm speculating, but I do believe, this is what I think is going on, I believe that Paul is interpreting this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our benefit. He wants us to understand that, yes, God did receive gifts from men, but he received them in order to give to his people. That's what I believe he is speaking of here. But again... That whole God needing to ascend on high. Well, Paul goes into this in a bit more detail. Flipping back over to our text. He says, In saying, in verse 9, In saying he, God, ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? In other words, if God had to ascend, prior to that, he had to descend at some point. And who could that be talking about except for Jesus? How did God come to earth? He came in the form of Jesus. He came as a man. 
He sent his son Jesus to die. But what about this battle that God is waging against his enemy? Well, isn't that why Jesus came? To wage war against the serpent? If you'll remember from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, there is a promise given that God would put enmity between the woman and the offspring of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise the offspring's heel, but not before the offspring of the woman would crush his head. And here we see the fulfillment of this, where Jesus enters into human history as a man. He descends to the earth. And Paul is drawing a direct line from Psalm 68 to this incarnation of Christ, to the life, the death, and the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, listen, the one who descended to the lower regions of the earth is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And when he ascended, he ascended in glory and great victory. And according to Psalm 68, with him, he, took cap- he freed captives from sin as well as taking with him spoil or tribute. And Paul says that that tribute is what he has now granted to us. These are the varied gifts, the varied um, graces that we have received. So Jesus has not only given us this gift, he has also won it on our behalf. He waged a great and mighty war, and um, much to Satan's chagrin, the death that Jesus had on the cross was his greatest victory. Because in it, he killed the power of sin. Effectively, binding Satan. Now I know a lot of people are like, yeah, but don't you see the world around us? It's kind of gone mad. And yes, and there's some indirect um, influence from Satan on that. But do you know what Satan can't do anymore? He's completely incapable of it. He cannot accuse, credibly, the brethren of Christ. Why? Because Jesus has covered them with his blood. Satan's got nothing on us. He can't hold anything over our heads because we can plead the blood of Christ. Jesus died for me. My sin is forgiven. You can't accuse me of you can't accuse me of of of, of, of um, deserving to go to hell anymore. Jesus bought me, and I belong to Him. I'm His slave, and you can't touch me. I, I speak with so many Christians who are who are afraid of Satan. I'm like, he's got. If you're a Christian, he's got nothing on you. He can't. Even before Jesus came, the devil had to get permission to afflict Job. He couldn't just do it. He had to say, hey, God, do you mind if I do this? He's like, I mean, it'll prove a point, but you're, and you're going to lose, but okay. And, and, and if you're thinking, well, that's just, isn't that just kind of mean of God? Think about this for a minute. The most wicked and heinous act in all of human history. What was it? The crucifixion of the Son of God. And what happened? The greatest good. The salvation of sinners, a people for God. It's amazing that God is so sovereign, is sovereign, fully sovereign, that he can take wickedness like that and make it good. And then he ascended. And when you think of the ascension of the Lord Jesus, think of it as a great prince returning from a great military campaign. He returns home, his father crowns him king, and he is given all authority in heaven and on earth. 
That's what he received when he returned home, when he returned to the throne room. And one day he's going to bring that throne room here. It's going to return. It's going to be good. Not only has this grace been given, not only has it been won, but it's also been established. Jesus has established this grace, and he's established it upon leadership in the church. Verse 11 says this, Speaking of these graces that has been measured out to each one of us. And this list is not comprehensive. It is, in, it is no, by, by no means exhaustive. These are just some of the gifts that we have in the church. And I know this because if you go to Romans chapter 12, you go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you're going to see other lists of gifts there as well. But these gifts all have one thing in common, and I'll explain them in a moment. See if you can pick it out before I mention it. But verse 11 says... Of these gifts, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. What do all of these gifts have in common? They all have, have to do with the proclamation of God's word in some way, shape, or form. A more literal translation of this, which I love the ESV, is my favorite translation, although I do take issue with how they translated this because they missed a key word that I think adds some clarity to this because of what I'm about to argue for. But a more literal translation is this, and he himself gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. There are some who disagree with me and they would say that this text is talking about Five different gifts. I think it's only talking about four different gifts. And the reason for that um, is, is, is twofold. One is that word some that belongs in the text, it, uh, it goes with each gift. So some as apostles, one. Some as prophets, two. Some as evangelists, three. And some as pastors and teachers, four. And in fact, you could actually hyphenate the pastor or the, the, the shepherd teachers or pastor teachers. The word shepherd, there is the Greek word where we get the word pastor from, and we're going to take a look at that in a little bit. But before we do, I do want to look at these first three gifts, because we want to establish who is it that Paul is speaking of. Who are these apostles? Who are these prophets? Who are these evangelists? Of whom does he speak? Now, you probably recognize the same thing, because you've heard it twice before in this series. Where Paul talks about the apostles and the prophets, right? Um, and before I go to those, let's talk about this office of apostle. Because today, there's a lot of people who I know call themselves an apostle. Now, I would hope that if they are calling themselves an apostle, they're not putting them on the same level as like Paul or Peter, the apostle, with that same kind of authority. The Greek word for apostles, apostolos, which means sent. Or sent one. So you could say, sure, I, I, I say, say you have a church and, and you're going to send somebody out to go plant another church. You could technically call them apostle. I wouldn't. I, I would try to stay away from that because it gets confusing with the wordage. But there is a very unique group of apostles that has never that is never meant that was never meant to be repeated. And those apostles are the ones whom Jesus specifically called. There are four primary criteria for being an authoritative apostle. One, they had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ, which Peter talks about in 1 Peter 5, 
when, when establishing his, his authority and his, um, the authority that he has to tell the churches what to do, he, he grounds it in his apostolic authority. I've seen Jesus as, as risen. The second is they had to be commissioned by Jesus himself. And so there was only 13 of those. There was the original 11, excluding Judas, and then Matthias, who replaced Judas, and then the apostle Peter later, who were commissioned by Jesus himself to go and proclaim the gospel. The third criterion, I would argue, is the most important one. The words that they spoke were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and God had them written down and preserved for us in the New Testament. And finally, they are always accompanied by signs and wonders. And so, if you can find somebody who meets those criteria today, sure, you call them apostles, um, but I don't think that they're here anymore because we know that the canon of the scriptures is closed. God has given us his word. We no longer are looking for new revelation. God has given us everything, and it is sufficient for all faith and practice. The second, uh, the second group here is the prophets that is talked about. What was the role of a prophet? Well, in the Old Testament, the role of a prophet was that of a mouthpiece for God. And this was a foundational office, which, is, which they would receive direct revelation from God. And, they, and, and Paul said that the prophets themselves were subject to the apostles' authority. The prophets were subject to the apostles' authority. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us this, speaking of the prophets, um, the author says, Listen, long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. We now no longer hear God's word from prophets. Jesus has revealed himself to us by the apostles' teaching, which is now in his word. And I would argue that this is the foundation that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says that God is building for himself a household, and he's building it upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus as the cornerstone. And he is building it up, and it's all joined together at the cornerstone, and he's building it up into the temple of God. This is the foundation for the church. And again, what the apostles and prophets both have in common is this. They were both given the authority to write scripture. Which is why I don't think that the apostles or the prophets exist today as they did then. I will always question people who tell me that they are a prophet or a self-proclaimed apostle. They're like, really? What makes you that? Sometimes it's just because they would call, I know some people who call a pastor an apostle. I would never personally do that, but I understand um, if, they, if they would. But I would stay away from it. Apostles and prophets were the original foundation, the building block that Jesus laid at the beginning to build his church on top of. The scriptures, the things that they wrote and taught. Prophets, Old Testament, apostles, New Testament. Um, they are who we base this on. In chapter 3, Paul says again that the apostles and the prophets were the ones who, were, who God revealed the mystery of the gospel to. That mystery being that not only Jews can be saved, but also Gentiles. That's you and me. I do not have a Jewish background. I have no Jewish blood in me, and yet a Jewish Messiah is my Savior. I mean, how cool is that? So establishing... The foundation of the church on these apostles and these prophets. There's a third office here, and I'm not going to die on the hill that I'm about to present. 
Because I'm not 100% sure on this one. The evangelists. This is considered here as an office. Now, what I'm about to present to you, I want to make sure that you understand this in no way negates the responsibility of every Christian in every place to bear witness to the person of Christ. Every Christian has that responsibility. However, it seems as though within this context, Paul is talking about a particular office of evangelist. And when I say office, I'm saying I'm distinguishing that from like somebody who likes to do it, but this is somebody who is ordained to be an evangelist. And I, and I, and I argue that it's, it's an office because of two things. One, in Acts 21, we're told that Philip, one of the disciples, was indeed, he was called the evangelist. I don't see that anywhere else in the Bible, but Philip himself is the evangelist. Furthermore, in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. It seems as though this had a prominent place in the early church. Now, we're all called to evangelize, but we don't have evangelists like they did then. Does that make sense? Are you following me? Okay. I found this difficult. Honestly, working through this myself, I'm thinking this looks different than what we think of as evangelizing or sharing the gospel with our neighbor. Um, but I'm not, I won't die on that hill. If somebody can show me that I'm wrong, please do. Um, but this is, um, I would argue that the evangelists, the apostles, and the prophets were part of this firm foundation that God laid during the time of the early church. And again, I cannot stress this enough, that in no way negates every Christian to bear witness to the person and work of Christ. We must all do that. But this leads us to the uh, fourth office, of which I'm going to take a little bit extra time on as long as time permits me at least or unless you guys just get up and walk out then that's cool which is I'm going to argue is the shepherd teacher he gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists and the shepherd teacher what is the shepherd teacher what is their function what is their role what what do they do I just realized I'm standing really far away from the mic can you guys hear me okay I yell loud. My wife says I'm loud, so I guess I'm loud. A shepherd teacher, their primary responsibility is to feed the sheep. That's what Jesus told Peter. He said, feed my sheep. And we're going to look at that more in-depthly. In-depthly? Is that a word? I think I made that one up. But before I give more of an explanation there, I want to help you you probably already know this, but just so I'm covering all of my bases. In the Bible, there is one particular office that we still use today. It's the office that Pastor Tim holds here, and it's what I hold at my church. It is the office of pastor. And if you're wondering where that office comes from, it is mentioned multiple times in the New Testament, but in different words. So, for example, in 1 Timothy, Paul gives a qualification for somebody he calls an overseer. Overseers must be above reproach, and he gives a big, long list of qualifications. And then Paul writes another letter to a man named Titus, and he says, I put you in Crete for this specific reason, that you would appoint elders, and they must oversee the flock of God. Connects those two together, the overseer and elder. All right, so we got an overseer and an elder. Then we come to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm sorry, not Ephesians 5. 1 Peter 5, where 
Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder to shepherd the flock of God among you. So now he's connected elders and shepherding. Shepherd is where we get the word pastor from in Greek. And so now all of a sudden all these come together and we realize, oh wait, so overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, they're all the same word. They're all different words for the exact same office. So from here on out, I'm going to use the word elder or pastor. All right? But it's all talking about the same thing. Tracking me? Tracking with me? Okay. So in 1 Peter 5, which is what I want to take a look at primarily, because I can think of no better text that gives a, a job description for what a pastor or a shepherd or an elder is to do. When I was ordained, I'm a little biased because when I was ordained, this was the text that was read. This is the text that was read before the congregation, before the rest of the elders laid hands on me and ordained me. The lead pastor, he read this to me and asked me to covenant to keep this. He said, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's your job as a pastor. That's what I was told. As a pastor, as an elder, my job is to shepherd the flock of God that he has given to me, that is among me. He continues, exercising oversight. You're overseeing the church, not under compulsion. They shouldn't have to twist my arm for this. But I must do it willingly, as God would have me, not for shameful gain. I, I can't be getting into the ministry just so that I can gain notoriety or, or wealth. That's not what the pastor that's not what the pastorate is all about. But eagerly. I must be excited about it. I must have a passion for it. Not domineering. I'm no tyrant. I should not be domineering over those in my charge. But I must be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, who is Jesus, appears, I will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the job of a pastor. To shepherd the flock of God. Now, I have the privilege of preaching on a day where your pastor is not here, so I get to talk all kinds of good things about him. I would talk about good things all about him anyway, but this way it's just less awkward. You should know this. The man that you have found to pastor this congregation loves you. I talk to him often, and he is so excited for what God is doing in you and in this church. He wants the absolute best for you. He cares for you deeply. He prays for you regularly. He labors over you. So keep that in mind. He loves you dearly. And his duties are as follows. The duty of a shepherd. And you can probably see this as you pay attention to what he does. The duty of a shepherd, number one, he must lead his flock. A shepherd must be able to lead his flock through difficult and rocky terrain. You guys have experienced some rocky terrain in the past several years. And a shepherd must learn to lead you through that. A shepherd must lead his flock to fresh water and green pastures. Where you may graze and drink freely and in safety. The, uh, the, one of the duties of a shepherd is to feed his flock. And the way you feed the flock of Christ is by giving them a steady diet of the Word of God. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? He said that not every man, no, no man can live on bread alone but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. He must give you that nourishing, refreshing water to hydrate your dehydrated souls. There are pastors today who could care less about feeding you the word of God. They'll give you five steps to a better life. They'll give you five steps to a better marriage or a better financial life, but they won't feed you with the gospel. Pastor Tim will. A good shepherd will tend the flock of God. What does that mean, to tend the flock of God? It means the shepherd is going to know his sheep. Remember Jesus, he said that I know my sheep and my sheep know me. You have a relationship with your shepherd. He will know how to bind up your wounds, how to care for your young, how to kill, kill, how to care for your sick, how to care for your old. He will be able to, to know that depending on where you guys are, are, are traveling to, he'll know the tendency of the flock and who may need more attention at this particular point in time. Maybe he needs to come alongside. He will tend the flock well. And the fourth and most important, I would argue, well, second most important after feeding, is protecting the flock. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul, knowing that he was probably going to be arrested and eventually executed upon his return to Jerusalem, before leaving Ephesus, he called to himself the elders from the church of Ephesus. Not the lead pastor, not the senior pastor, not the pastor, but all the elders. Every single one of them. He called them to himself. And he wanted to warn them of what was to come. Acts chapter 20, he says, When I leave, I know that wolves will come in, uh, will come in among you and they will not spare the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise and they will twist things and they will drive the disciples away. He said, be careful. Watch yourselves carefully. This is the flock of God whom Jesus purchased with his blood. The church is precious. You are precious to the Lord Jesus. This is the work of a shepherd. And it's in that work of a shepherd that Jesus sustains this grace. Remember? Jesus has given us this grace. He's won us this grace. He's established this grace on the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. And he is sustaining his grace through the teaching of his word by these shepherd teachers. We read the last couple of verses here, verses, uh, verse 12. We are told to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is why Jesus has given these gifts to the church. Your leadership is a gift to your church. Why? So that you may be properly equipped for the work of the ministry. So that you may be equipped to proclaim the gospel to your friends, to your family, to your co-workers, to whatever sphere of influence that you have. That you may be fully equipped. This is how the church of Jesus is sustained. As pastors teach and train um, uh, the saints in the word of God, they carry those things on. The work of these offices have been given to equip the saints. They've been given to build up the body of Christ. Early on in um, chapter 2, 
chapter 2 and chapter 3, talking about this, this household that God is building on the foundation of Scripture, the, the apostles and the prophets. He's building up into a temple. He's making them mature, and this happens as you grow more and more in your knowledge of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Not in a weird cultish way, but in a way that uh, you know, you, you still hold your pastor accountable to the things of God in his word, right? If he, if he strays off, you've got to call him back. Um, but, but generally speaking, you are to obey and submit to your leaders, but why? Because they are keeping watch over your souls, and for them, he will have to give an account. Everybody in this room, you have people who you're responsible for. Whether it's children, grandchildren, uh, nieces, nephews, whatever. When you are with them and you are ministering to them, you will have given account for those people. But Pastor Tim and myself, we're not only going to give an account for my wife, we're not for our wives and our children. We're also going to give an account for the people whom God has entrusted to us. This is what needs and must keep pastors humble. It should make us wobbly at the knees. Because we're going to stand before God one day and have to give a report on the people whom God gave to us. And we had better have done this thing faithfully. This is God's church. This is the bride of Christ. It's precious. All of this, to say this, if you ever take anything from this, I want you to remember that God has given you a varied grace. Each of you has a specific gift. And one of those gifts, and specific gifts that you may use in this church, but there's another gift that he's given you, and it's your leadership. It's your trustees. It's Pastor Tim. I'm not sure how everything here is set up, whether there's a board of elders or not. But your leadership is a gift to you because they care for you. They take care of this building. They take care of you in the hospital or or, or visit you when you're going through a hard time. Or if you have a question about the Bible or about Jesus, you come to them. But there's one thing that I do want to quick point out. In every instance that we ever talk about elders in the church, it's always plural. It's, It's never one guy. Every text that I have read about elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds, it's always plural. There's always a plurality of them. And I've had the privilege for the last four years of serving in a church that takes this very seriously. We have 26 elders at my church. Now, I pastor a small little – our church is, is, has multiple locations. And the little tiny campus that I have is about 30, 40 people who attend there. I'm responsible for them. I have one other elder who serves with me. But I've got another, a huge host of elders outside of that that will help me if I need their help. That makes sure that the church of God is truly cared for when they are needed to be cared for. And there's going to be a season in every single church where there's always just going to be one guy because you're not going to have a whole list of things. But eventually, the hope is that if, if you guys continue to grow, as you continue the momentum that you're on, you will need more elders to shepherd you, to lead you, to guide you. Some may be vocational, some uh, non-vocational. Most of the elders at my church are not vocational. They do it voluntarily, but they go through the same training. They're still ordained. They can still marry and bury people. Um, but that's what an elder does. So I'd encourage you that I don't know what all of I don't know what all of Tim's plans are, but knowing him, I'm assuming that he will introduce this idea of. Um, a plurality of elders to you, and it's a biblical practice. It's something that the Bible teaches, and it would help him care for you better. Now, if you're here today and you're not a part of the church of Jesus Christ, if you've never made a commitment to him, if you've never repented of your sin and you've come to him and you've not come to him, today is the day 
of salvation. Jesus says that anybody who comes to him, he will never cast out. He said that if you are weary and heavy laden, come to him and he will give you a, a light yoke. His, his burden is light. His yoke is... Yeah, that. I just totally mixed up the verse. He's like that. Come to me, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and I will give you rest for your souls. So if you don't know him today, come, know him. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate the word that he's given us, that he's given us these great gifts. He's done it by winning it for us. He's done it by establishing it in leadership in the church, and he's done it by sustaining it through the training of the saints as they continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus. If you're here today and you don't, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, Come to him today. This table is for all who are members of the body of Christ. If you have repented, if you belong to Jesus, come celebrate his broken body and his poured out blood because it is your salvation. He poured it out freely on your behalf. The way we're